Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk again. Uh, Today is a pretty auspicious day in the sense that if people didn't realise it, it is the third anniversary of Brexit. So I think some discussion on that three year period would be warranted. Um, I also want to talk about the Eurozone growth numbers that were published by Eurostat this morning. And within that, uh, we have data specifically on Irish growth that does warrant a little bit of a discussion. We had some retail sales data out of Ireland last week, which I'd like to just summarize. Today, we had the latest economic forecast from the International Monetary Fund. The IMF typically produces three forecasts a year. And last year, on every occasion, it revised its global growth forecast in a downward direction. Uh, The one published today actually breaks that trend We've seen a modest upward adjustment. So I think that is worth talking about. I would also like to talk about IBEX's latest report on the Irish housing market, which did attract a lot of headlines here yesterday. Uh, But quite frankly, I saw nothing there that came as a remotely surprising to me. But some interesting suggestions from IBEX in terms of how we might address the challenges in the housing and the rental market. Um, On our Substack account over the weekend, we published a piece, a reasonably in-depth analysis of where the Irish housing market is at the moment. Very statistical 
in its nature, but we also made some international comparisons, which I think put the Irish housing situation into some context. Um, but something that we have always said, and personally, I think I've been saying it ad nauseum, that housing is the biggest economic social and political challenge facing the country. So it's in that context, I think the latest publication from IBEC is worth a discussion. So Chris, if I may start off by marking the third anniversary of Brexit, we've seen, and you certainly have written a lot about it, and we've spoken a lot about it. We've seen an absolute shit show erupt and evolve in the UK over the last two or three years. And indeed, you could trace it back to the 23rd of June, 2016. All of the positive benefits that were we were promised from Brexit, particularly the increased funding for the National Health Service, does not appear to have materialised. And in fact, the National Health Service over recent months is falling into a pretty dysfunctional state. So Chris, as somebody who lives in the UK, are you celebrating this third anniversary today. I assume you're having a laugh, Jim, with that I question. I am, Chris. I could speak all day about this, as you know. And I have, as you said, I've spoken a lot about it on this podcast, written a lot about it over the years, over the six and a half years since that Brexit referendum. It has never gone away as a subject in my own mind. It's become an increasing source of regret for me, both personally as an economist. The personal thing is that the restrictions I now have when I go to France, uh, which I do quite a lot, uh, having your passport stamped and inspected going in, coming out of France is a small thing. It's a tiny thing, but it, but very, very symbolic of what I consider a, a backward step. Borders should be being opened, not closed, as symbolized by that passport stamp, which re which really represents a restriction on the number of days I can spend in France. Not a huge deal. It's, it's personal. It affects anybody that's going to the EU from the UK. But it is always a constant reminder when you're standing in that passport non-EU queue at a Spanish or other EU country airport that things have changed. If you're a small or medium-sized business trying to trade with the EU, things have changed a lot. That's where the economic rubber has hit the road. It's for small and medium-sized businesses trying to sell or indeed import, but mostly sell to Europe. A lot have given up and all of them are finding it much more difficult. And whatever small or medium-sized business person you speak to, and they are spoken to a lot by various analysts, various uh, people who conduct surveys of opinion or collate statistics, it all, all of it points in one direction. Nowhere has it become easier to trade with the EU. Everywhere it has become harder and so on and so forth. The Perhaps the best way I can describe the, the state of the debate is to refer you, Jim, to last night's Newsnight. Newsnight is the flagship current affairs program daily during the week for the BBC. And they went to Milton Keynes, which is a town just north of London that uh, represented the Brexit referendum in so far as it was roughly representative, as I say, of the 52-48% split in the country, that the town of Milton Keynes was split in the same way. And being the BBC, they had tried to achieve balance by having an audience 52% Leavers, 48% Remainers, or at least that was the way that they voted. And it was fascinating listening to the comments from that 52-48 audience. 
and a selected panel of politicians and experts in this area. It was interesting that nobody from the government, although they were invited, agreed to come on to the programme. Brexit is so toxic a subject now that mainstream politicians absolutely loathe going anywhere near it. And there were so many threads that I could unpick from this hour-long discussion that took place on Newsnight. I won't go through all of them, but a, a couple of salient ones were there was... A, a guy who was clearly involved in the manufacturing industry in the UK. He sounded very Irish to me, and he certainly had an Irish name. And he was talking about the pounds cost. He had the figures in front of him of how much going away from EU regulations and, and all that stuff has cost his business on an annual basis, how much the one-off costs are going to be from the changes that are being proposed. So it was a, a really p and profit and loss focused piece of analysis that's saying this is how much Brexit has cost me as a small or medium sized business. And it was it was quite striking. There was a guy in the audience who talked about racism and about how in the days following the Brexit referendum, his wife was accosted on, on a high street in the UK. This guy was obviously of an ethnic origin. He, he was born in the UK, so he's completely British but clearly from, from a, a non-British background originally, one, one would, would suspect from his name, describing his wife, he said that she was accosted in the street in the days following the referendum result and told, we have got our country back, it's time for you to go home. And he said, those were, that's a quote, and he said that he, the words actually used were, of course, far uh, vulgar, uh, more vile than that, more offensive than that. Clearly, swear words were, were used in a way that we, we can all imagine. One of the more interesting contributions from the panel was from a guy called Ben Habib, who was an MEP from the UK in the days when the UK had members of the European Parliament. And he was an MEP for the Brexit Party. And he, I think, was one of the leading members of the Leave campaign. And he chose to focus on the non-existence of a trade deal with the United States. And he did this in a very bizarre but telling way. You might recall, Jim, that during the referendum campaign, and indeed since Britain has left the EU, many, many hopes were pinned by the Brexiteers on doing lots of trade deals in general, global Britain and all that kind of stuff. And in particular, doing a big trade deal with the United States to give a big boost to the UK economy. And that's all gone away because the US has said, we've got no interest in doing a trade deal with you at all. And in particular, we're not going to do one while you're acting the MAGA over the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's Joe Biden's White House speaking there. And Ben Habib went off on this strange rant about how the absence of a trade deal with the United States made no difference whatsoever to anything because we still trade with the US. We don't need a trade deal to trade with the US. So he was uh, downplaying the need for a trade deal. He didn't actually reference anything about the previous claims that doing a trade deal with the US would benefit the UK and now claiming that we don't need one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was all just complete nonsense. And apart from the nonsense, it revealed that they don't understand trade. Now, trade, as you know, Jim, is mind-numbingly complicated. It's mind-numbingly boring. And what these kinds of discussions always reveal is that the people concerned don't understand anything about trade negotiations whatsoever. They have to be conducted by experts. They have to be conducted in the most amazing detail that you can't possibly imagine. You are talking about rules and regulations, about chickens, about U.S. pharmaceutical company access to the NHS, 
and a million and one other line items of detail that go into a treaty that takes on average seven years, historically at least, to negotiate. The second thing that is revealed by the, the, the frankly, the bullshit that these people come out with is that they're operating with 18th or at best 19th century trade mindsets. You, you remember what mercantilism was all about. And back in the days when politicians would bang on about the need for free trade, let's have free trade in the way that they do now, is that dropping trade barriers meant taking tariffs off, taxes on imports, all the rest of it, the way in which people put tariffs on things, usually, of course, on imports. It's not about that anymore, because tariffs are very low, even under WTO rules, that famous WTO deal that people talked about back in the day. Tariffs are not the issue. It's all about non-tariff barriers, which are even more mind-numbingly complex, because not only do you have to start thinking about the rules and regulations under which all of your goods are being produced that you are trying to sell to another country, you've got to think about the inputs. So if you're making a widget in the UK, that in order to manufacture, you have to import lots of other sub-widgets from Asia or Af- and or Africa or anywhere else, the rules and regulations will ob- will pertain to those imports of your inputs. As, and on it goes. And these people clearly do not understand this. They think that they still think that trade is all about tariffs. So it's all a nonsense. And it's all, frankly, BS, bullshit. And that, that brings me to my sort of final remarks about this. There's a, there's a great article in a magazine, a British magazine called Prospect. Uh, there's a great article this in this month's edition, in the March edition of all things, uh, so they're a bit ahead of themselves, by a guy called Ethan Zuckerman. Who called, who, the, the article is titled Beating the Bullshitters. And he references a fantastic uh, essay and book that was originally written by somebody called Harry Frankfurt. And the book is called On Bullshit. And the quote is a fantastic one. One of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much bullshit. And when it comes to the Brexit referendum, Jim, when it comes to the Brexit event itself, which, as you rightly have said, is now three years old today, we left the European Union three whole years ago, it's all bullshit. And one of the many problems facing the UK today is that we've fallen into this cesspit of bullshit that we show no signs whatsoever of climbing out of. What can I say, Chris? I just think it's instructive that um, in a lot of the global forecasts that have been produced by international agencies and by, indeed, private sector interests over recent weeks, um, one of the common refrains is that the UK will be one of the world's the, one of the world's most significant economies going into recession this year. Um, So from an economic perspective, the UK is very definitely underperforming most of the rest of the world at the moment. And and you'd have to say that Brexit has had a huge impact there. And uh, yeah, I think bullshit does summarize it very, very well. So I don't think there's anything else I can add to what you're saying on Brexit, except that I guess from an Irish perspective, the Irish economy has actually adopted quite, adapted quite well. Uh, the trading performance, even with Great Britain, is still pretty decent, although it has had a significant impact on the logistics of that trade. Uh, but business is adjusting and uh, the dire economic consequences for the agri-food sector, particularly, uh, definitely not materializing at this stage 
and long may that remain the case. Jim, can I just reference one more thing that was said in that uh, Newsnight interview that should be of some interest to you and our Irish audience at least, but it should also interest our UK audience. This guy that I mentioned, Ben Habib, he talked about court cases that he has brought in the UK against the government, against whoever I think he can possibly sue or injunct, uh, because he says that the uh, Brexit deal that that was eventually negotiated by Boris Johnson violates the territorial integrity of the UK because Northern Ireland has been left in the EU. What do you think about that as a statement? Bullshit, Chris, comes to mind. It's it's really interesting looking at the economic performance of the UK. Oh, sorry, of Northern Ireland. Um, it's it's obviously struggling a little bit at the moment because interest rates are rising. You know, global growth is slower. Economic activity in the mainland, as in Great Britain, is weaker. So lots of, and of course, the cost of living crisis um, is also affecting Northern Ireland consumers. But the Northern Ireland economy, from a trade perspective, actually has done pretty well over the last couple of years. You know, there's been strong growth in exports um, and trade in the other direction, also quite strong. Um, I just I, I find it really difficult to comprehend the whole debate about the Northern Ireland Protocol, because to me, it seems like nirvana for Northern Ireland economically. Um, it is free access to the UK market and free access to the single European market. I mean, what more could you ask for? And in terms of damaging the um, integrity of Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom, that is total and utter bullshit. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I, I never could and probably never will understand politics in Northern Ireland, so I'm not even going to try. But I have to say that whole debate about the on-off nature of the Northern Ireland Protocol, it leaves me cold. Most of it goes straight over my head. Cause, and in fact, that's always been my response to politics in Northern Ireland as far back as I can remember. Chris, moving on to the Eurostat growth numbers for the euro area today, um, relating to the fourth quarter of last year, the Eurozone avoided a move into recession. Growth increased by 0.1% following growth of 0.3% the previous quarter. So a bit of a slowdown, no surprises there. And um, last year, the Eurozone economy actually delivered growth of 3.5%. At least that is the preliminary estimate. So that's a decent enough performance. But it is worth pointing out that it did slow in the final quarter. And looking at the geographic breakdown of that growth performance, uh, Germany contracted by 0.2%. And um, I think Germany's specific problem relates to, number one, its export exposure to the shutdown Chinese economy last year. Because as we mentioned in a previous podcast last year, China delivered estimated growth of 3%, which is the lowest in about 50 years. So that hit the German export performance, but also Germany had a much greater exposure to imported energy from Russia. So Germany really got hit badly. The Italian economy contracted by 0.1%, but then you look at Spain up by 0.2%, France up by 0.1%. So a reasonable economic performance. It's not to suggest that the Eurozone is out of the woods, that it is definitely going to avoid recession. Um, You certainly couldn't jump to that conclusion at this stage uh, because 
we still have to see the impact of um, rising interest rates to feed through during 2023, with more to come next week, I think. Um, the other interesting feature, and this relates to a CSO data release yesterday. For the first time, the CSO is now producing preliminary GDP data, um, and this was reflected in the Eurozone uh, released today. But the Irish economy in the fourth quarter expanded by three and a half percent. And that equates to a year on year growth rate of 13 and a half percent. So in other words, the Irish economy in the final quarter of last year was 13 and a half percent larger than in the final quarter of uh, 2021. And for last year as a whole, GDP is now estimated to have expanded by about 12.2%, which is a couple of percent above what the Department of Finance was forecasting um, in the budget at the end of September. It is worth pointing out, of course, as we've done many times, that GDP does grossly exaggerate growth in an Irish context because it is significantly affected by multinational profit repatriations, by intellectual property assets that were transferred into Ireland after 2015, by the activities of aircraft leasing companies and so on. As we've explained in the past, and I think this is something it's always worth uh, revisiting and explaining, but the Central Statistics Office after 2016 tried to develop alternative measures of economic activity uh, that give a better picture of what's really happening on the ground. And they come up with the concept of um, gross national income star, that's GNI star, um, which they describe as stripping out the impacts of globalization. And there's another slightly different measure called modified domestic demand. Um, unfortunately, the preliminary release we got yesterday um, just shows GDP up 3.5% during the quarter. It does not, and it won't do until early March, give a breakdown of GNI star and modified domestic demand. Um, I suspect, you know, for last year, as I say, GDP estimated to have expanded by 12.2%. And I suspect when we see the measure of modified domestic demand, it's likely to see growth of around 5% or thereabouts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The strongest performing economy in the European Union uh, but obviously exaggerated by GDP. Uh, but it is also interesting, a lot of the international commentary this morning around the Eurozone growth numbers from Eurostat, uh, the point was made by several commentators that um, Ireland's 3.5% growth contribution 
um, exaggerated the overall complexion of the Eurozone numbers. Well, <laughs> and it, for it can't have exaggerated very much. Ireland's only about exactly. 1% of the Eurozone, so arithmetically it can't be much. E- but... E- exactly, but, 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 but the point is made and uh, it, it, it is interesting. Your debt-GDP ratio, given that they're in nominal amounts must be phenomenal in terms of the way it's falling very rapidly. We live in a world where everybody warns that we're on the brink of catastrophe because of debt levels everywhere. Ireland's debt-to-GDP ratio must have fallen last year. Yeah, we had a budget surplus. So debt uh, would have gone down. Yeah, I I suspect the debt-to-GDP ratio at the end of last year will come in somewhere in the low 50s. Okay, and... uh, 60% 60% is the sort of magic number when the master conversions criteria uh, were developed in the early 90s for entry into the single European currency in 1999. 60% was the cutoff point. A 60% debt to GDP ratio did not have any scientific uh, significance or relevance, but it was um, it, it was the agreed target that countries would have to achieve. So Ireland is well below that 60% and um, now has one of the lowest debt GDP ratios in the European Union. However, I believe it it was cooked up on the steps of Dublin Castle by two European leaders who I think are now dead um, and was literally picked out of the air at a a treaty negotiation. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, there was no scientific basis. But if you measure our debt as a percentage of gross national income star, uh, it probably ended last year, I suspect, around 90 percent. So and and moving or lower even and is moving in a downward direction. So, yeah, the public finances here on the back of that tax revenue buoyancy and strong growth in the economy is doing very well. And uh, we we, we have, I I guess, spoken about this a lot. Um, You know, if you look at tax revenues really strong, if you look at the export performance of the economy, particularly the multinational dominated chemical and pharmaceutical sector, very strong export performance there. But even, you know, the agri-food side saw growth of 22% in exports last year. Um, the labour market, 4.3% unemployment rate at the end of the year, 2.55 million people employed at the end of September. So a lot of the economic indicators last year were actually very, very strong and are all consistent with this strong growth performance. I've got a couple of things I want to sort of say, stroke, ask you about here. First of all, a comment about the Eurozone's economic performance one particular aspect of it that caught my eye today was that EU industrial production in November grew by 2% in real terms. You're, when you think about the forecasts that were being made by such well-known forecasters as Vladimir Putin at the beginning of the year and uh, the Wall Street Journal said the same thing. They both said that as a result of the energy crisis, Europe was on a very rapid path to deindustrialization, and yet industrial production is growing. So somebody was wrong, I think, or at least wrong so far. And I think what those industrial production numbers speak to is something you and I have banged on about a lot, which is basic economics, which are the substitution and income effects that arise from higher energy prices. And that you get, first of all, European industry is more resilient than those characters gave it credit for. You got diversification. You got substitution into other energy sources. And you you got reduced because the the German chemical industry, which has been on a long trend of diversifying internationally out of the eurozone, has continued on that path. So in a way, it's a so far so good story and a much better story 
than Vladimir Putin in particular thought we were going to have in Europe. So that that that's a good thing. I just wanted to note that that the 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 doom and gloom that was around from high energy prices has dissipated somewhat. The second thing I wanted to say, and this is more of a question than than a comment, is that I have noticed that with a lot of uh, job announcements or job cut announcements from these tech firms, we've had a a whole rake of them now, and the latest has been Spotify, I think, and others, lots of others, is that they're starting to say something common to all of these job cut announcements is that we we overhired during the pandemic. If that is true, if these job cuts are just a reset back to where they should have been rather than the mistake they made during the pandemic, then actually it's horrible for the people concerned. Absolutely. But it isn't suggestive of anything particularly structural or secular or anything that we should get worried about for the longer term. I think that's interesting. So what do you think, Jim? Do you think that they just overhired during the pandemic? Is it just a cyclical slowdown because of an advertising cutback on which the, uh, advertising revenues they, they rely on a lot? Or is it something secular? Or is it all of the above? I actually think it's um, more cyclical in nature. You know, the, the tech cycle was incredibly strong during the couple of years of COVID. Uh, firms, the big firms particularly, were competing aggressively to hire talent. And indeed, there was definitely evidence of hoarding talent to prevent the opposition or competition from getting it. Um, and then as the economy started to slow down in 2022, suddenly these firms discovered actually that the growth in online and tech-driven business is weakening. We have too many staff. Um, it's now time to resize again. And that's exactly, I think, what's happening at the moment. There may be tech companies there that actually won't survive this, but technology will survive. It will come out the other end. And um, I, I think from the longer term sustainability of the technology sector, this sort of correction and readjustment actually is very good news and does make it more sustainable in the slightly longer term. Uh, but obviously, this readjustment is painful for individual companies. It's painful for the staff involved. But uh, I don't see it, I have to say, as a significant structural adjustment in the contribution of technology to the global economy or indeed specifically to the Irish economy. And um, I mentioned um, in another podcast that um, I'm picking up evidence in the recruitment industry that a lot of the workers being shed by the large tech companies here are being picked up by smaller tech companies, but more importantly, by other companies in different sectors that could not compete with the big tech companies for technology staff over the last couple of years. So I'm reasonably yeah. upbeat. Good. I would share that. I think that there is a, a strong cyclical short-term element to this, painful though it is. Uh, I would be relatively optimistic. And therefore, with all of those read across to uh, Irish employment and indeed Irish tax revenues, the go-go days of growth are over for now, certainly. But uh, I don't think that we are in anything particularly structural. Time will tell, as they say. Chris, I just... yeah, just God. interesting, if I may make a point. I mean, we've discussed Twitter. We've discussed Elon Musk. And uh, I was talking to somebody this morning um, who has had personal dealings with Elon Musk, um, who said that um, in meetings, he is a totally different character than the sort of public profile, um, much more considered, much more sensible, and that he knew exactly 
what he was doing with Twitter. And um, apparently, you, is you quite may say that, Jim, moment. but there's very little evidence for that. But but uh, I hope that <laughs> I hope that he does know what he's doing. Can I just roll back the tape a little bit to the, to the IMF numbers that you were yeah. talking about earlier on? That they become more optimistic. It is significant that they have, for the first time in a while, upgraded their forecast for the world economy. That speaks to the thing that we've picked up over the last few weeks that the doom and gloom towards the end of the year was overdone. But the other big thing here in the UK, of course, is that they forecast Russia to grow by more than the UK this year. In fact, they forecast growth for Russia and a recession for the state uh, for the UK, which, of course, gets everybody in this country very, very exercised. The first thing I say is that this, these are forecasts. I'll make all the usual caveats about these forecasts. It could easily turn out to be completely and utterly wrong. But I think the underlying message is important and it requires further attention, which is that the things that have been bedeviling the UK growth now for 15 years haven't gone away. And that this morass that the UK finds itself in, morass of bullshit, I called it earlier on, uh, nothing is being done to uh, correct it. And I think actually it's now likely to get worse rather than better for all sorts of reasons. The headlines are dominated by basically the low paid people in British society saying we've had enough. We've had enough of being squeezed. And it's the top half now that really interests me. Uh, What are they going to do with the problems they face? Because I want to compare and contrast the US and the UK here with a thought experiment. And I'd be very interested in whether you think I'm barking up the wrong tree. The problem, one of the problems that the US has is not that it is not growing. Unlike the UK, it does grow and it does produce per capita growth. The problem that the US has got which has thrown up Trumpism and all the the other populist things that we know about, is that the American dream is over. And it's the top 1% that have been capturing all of the benefits of growth. And so they have that particular problem. If you think about the UK, the top 1% or the top 5% or the top 10% can't do that anymore, can't do that trick that the top in the, the elites are doing in the United States because there isn't any growth for them to capture. If the top X percent, the elites in the UK are to improve their economic position. They can only do it at the expense of somebody else lower down the income distribution. So that sets up all sorts of societal conflicts and all sorts of real populist nonsense that's going on in the UK. So I, and what are they going to do about this? Because they're not doing anything about growth. So we've got all the protests from the lower paid in the UK making all the headlines at the moment. But I tell you, Jim, it, the top half, the top 10 percent, the top 5 percent, the top 1 percent are really starting to feel it because they're noticing that they can't grab any more of a cake that isn't growing anymore. And other things are happening in UK society that are affecting the elites as well, because equality legislation, equality rules means that it's harder for their kids to get into elite universities. Oxbridge now are really starting to favour state schools over privately educated kids. There's all sorts of moaning about that. And the, the, the professions aren't what they were. My generation, in posh people in my day, all went to university. And people like me, I was an exception, generally didn't. 10% of my cohort in the British population went to college. And back in those days, if you went to college, basically you were made. You're going to be fine. You get into one of the good jobs in the city, in the professions, in the civil service, or that sort of thing. That route is slowly closing for the elites through a whole host of for a whole host of reasons. 
So I think the protest and societal dysfunction in the UK is not going to be restricted just to the lower half of the income distribution, as it seems at the moment with the wall on strike. It's the top half, I think, over the next year or two that you really need to watch because they're improvements, their expectations, they're going to be very, very disappointed. Looking, I guess, at how that applies here in Ireland, um, I definitely see very much a dual economy and one's view on what's happening in Ireland is very heavily predicated on where you stand in that. And if you break it down by occupation, you know, if you work in the public sector, if you work in the multinational sector in financial services, professional services, the public sector, you're doing quite well. If you work in uh, hospitality or non-essential retail or in personal services, your economic circumstances are much more challenged. And then from an age perspective, uh, for those aged between 20 and late 30s, it's very, very challenging at the moment. If you're into your mid to late 40s and into your 50s and your 60s, life is quite comfortable. So it's, 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 we, we do not have anything like, I think, the same sort of divide that the UK or the United States has. But there certainly is a divide here. Um, I, I go back to my comment, Jim. This is the yeah. difference between an economy that grows and an economy that doesn't. You've got Indeed. loads and loads of growth to fight over in Ireland. Yeah. And how you split it, of course, is up to you. That's the political judgment that you face. So it's dealing with the issues that your economy is throwing up. Your economy is throwing up growth. And all of your rows are about how you share that growth out, yeah. whether you do or whether you don't. And if you do, how you do it. In the UK, we can't have that problem. We don't have that problem. We'd love to have it. So the only way anybody in the UK gets more is by taking it from somebody else. There is no growth to share around. Yeah, uh, well, it go, goes back to a point we've discussed many times about um, the necessity of having a functioning economy to generate the resources that are used to fund a society is ab absolutely essential. And um, we, we, we have on this ongoing narrative about Ireland being a failed state, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the facts don't back it up. Um, not saying for a moment there are not challenges, difficulties. There are. And I mentioned if you're in that certain age cohort, um, it is challenging at the moment. There is an air of despondency largely because of the housing market. And indeed, uh, that brings me back to the, the actual housing market. Um, as we've often said, socially, economically, politically, it is the biggest challenge we face. IBEC came out with its latest report yesterday on housing, and the report is based on a survey it did with its members showing that 70% of IBEC members regard housing as a key challenge, and 30% describe it as a major challenge. And IBEC says that it's a critical barrier to continued growth and development in the economy, they are calling for speeding up the delivery of housing, improving the viability and the affordability. They make a number of suggestions. The key ones include they want to set up a new state fund, initially funded from the Exchequer um, and laterally from the local property tax in order to subvent the cost of development levies. In other words, um, developers will not have to pay development levies. This will be paid out of this new state fund. Secondly, um, a VAT refund to the order of 5% of the value of the new house, um, which they say will reduce the cost of the average 400,000 home by 30 grand a year. They're talking about a significant increase in development finance. 
um, from the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, Fund and from the Home Building Finance Ireland Fund. Uh, they talk about progressing more quickly the planning and development bill to speed up the delivery of housing through the planning process. And they also call for uh, more resources for the official agencies such as Ambor Planola that are instrumental in the delivery of housing. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there and um, nothing that is terribly earth shattering. But one of the one of the issues that I find in the whole housing debate now is that governments and people in governments who have responsibility for delivering housing, they're talking to a lot of the wrong people. You know, they're talking to academics, they're talking to economists. They don't actually talk enough to the people who actually build and deliver houses. Um, and I don't think they fully understand the challenges facing that sector. And there is a political bias here because um, no politician wants to be seen doing anything that would remotely, that would be seen to remotely help the developer, the developer class. It's politically verbatim. But I, I do think that um, government needs to listen more to what these developers and builders are saying about the difficulty in delivering the housing that's required. Okay, can I just conclude then, because we're running out of time, or we ran out of time ages ago, going back to that philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who coined the phrase on bullshit. He anticipated what you were saying there, and I'll quote from him. Bullshit is unavoidable whenever circumstances require someone to talk without knowledge what he is talking about. He sees the implications for speech by politicians who are routinely asked to opine on subjects they've never been briefed on and then produce sentences designed to be persuasive but devoid of substance. It's natural for all of us to have a distaste for this. I'll conclude there, Jim. Thank you for an absolutely fantastic discussion and I'll speak to you next time. Super, Chris, and thanks for filling me in on bullshit. You're welcome, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.